to Waiting to be Signed, the show where we reveal the week's events on FX Ash. My name is Trinity, and I'm joined by extra special guest host, Adam. But before we get started, just a quick disclaimer. We are here to talk about art, not just the aesthetics, but the money surrounding it, as the market is a key part of FX Ash. That said, nothing we say here should be taken as financial advice. It is for fun and conversation. You can follow us on Twitter at Waiting to Sign to keep up with our thoughts throughout the week, or for those who prefer visual language on Instagram at Waiting to Be Signed. If you are feeling generous, we are always accepting donations, including tokens, at our Tez wallet address, WTBS.Tez, or our ETH address, WTBS.ETH. That said, the best way you can support the show is by collecting the FX text article that accompanies each episode. It's a great way to follow along with all the references that we discuss, and we include images, links, all of that good stuff. Disclaimers aside, extra special guest toast, Adam. Hey, how are you? I'm doing really good. It's great to be on with you again. I know last time was more of an interview thing, and it's uh, quite an honor to be asked to come on as a co-host. Thank you. I know. We're, we're doubling down on everybody, it seems. And, you know, just for people who at home, Will is visiting his in-laws in Los Angeles this weekend, mm. a long Memorial Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got some in-law action coming, right? Yes, but that's future me, not present me. So uh-huh. podcasting duties abound. It's always a fun time on holiday weekends. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm hoping that it's going to be nice enough to uh, spend a lot of time outdoors this weekend, some family time. And I mean, we should probably be out of doors right now. It's so nice here in Brooklyn. Yeah, it is beautiful. I went for a long walk with my dog this morning. I'm feeling good. For oh, I didn't know walk. you had a dog. Yeah. What kind of dog do you have? She's a. Uh, her name is Billy, and she's half lab, half cocker spaniel. Okay. So she uh, she's like a 45, 50 pound. She's, she looks like a miniature lab with really long hair on her ears. It's basically That's so her, cute. Her deal. Yeah, and she's like a perpetual puppy. She's six, seven years old. People think she's a puppy still. She's got great energy. I love that. That's nice. Strong, solid energy. And it's good to have that in life. I think last time you were on, it was to talk about tender, right? And Everything that was happening with that, it was around the time of the tender pass release, I believe, or maybe slightly before it even, mm-hmm. which is super cool. But, you know, obviously you are still here with a tender hat to put on. But I think for the purposes of this episode, it's Adam, the collector and appreciator, unless the uh, the tender spokesman, so to speak. <laughs> hard, hard to separate the two a little bit, but definitely um, still active collector and even when I'm not buying I'm I'm looking and I'm appreciating for sure and yeah I'm I'm excited to kind of take this episode to to wear that hat specifically and talk about some of the art that's been coming out over the last week or so you know my tender hat is always on too and there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up for us but I'm definitely looking forward to some of the some of the projects that we've been seeing recently maturing and staying in the conversation keeping conversations going about some of the great works that we've seen mm-hmm. so yeah Cool. If I were to give you 30 seconds to talk about something that's exciting about Tender, that, you know, anything upcoming or anything that's in the in process. Art. Art. art? Big okay. Thing. So, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of my personal time and Tender's time has been spent on platform integrations over the last really four or five months. We've been working on integrating short form generative art, which is a huge lift. It's still underway. And we've been focusing on integrating Ethereum launches through the Artblocks engine. That's done. 
we can use those we can use that system and just another avenue for putting out more art you know my focus really is tripling down back on the art collaborations and some of the releases that are coming up so that's really what i'm super excited about my core passion and um you know i think there'll also be a couple of really interesting things for the community coming up too so more 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 coming soon stay tuned oh my gosh that's so mysterious and <laughs> okay we will stay tuned and sit on our hands. Are we sitting on our feet about it? I don't know. What's the term for waiting? To be signed. Oh, of course. Always that. I mean, I think also just maybe you want to shout out, you've been releasing AI generated art over the last couple of months too. And yeah. they are absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, over the years, I've had a lot of different art practices. I'm a photographer. Um, I do a lot of different things types of photography. It's all analog. I print, I do medium format, large format, 35. So I'm very active as a photographer and have been for decades uh, painting. And to add AI art into that mix has been a lot of fun. Um, it's super accessible. You know, there's almost always a moment I can dive in and play around with some stuff and not feel like I'm jumping into a lot of setup and I have to carve out a big chunk of time. And so that's a really rewarding way to put some of that creativity out. So yeah, it's been fun to share. And, you know, they're, they're relatively simple and straightforward works that are expressing some of the feelings I'm having and want to share and appreciate all the support for them. And I've got some new stuff coming up soon. Nothing mysterious, but in, in a little bit of a new series. You've got some exciting stuff coming up too. I yeah. do. That's yeah. I chatted about it a little bit last week, but, you know, just this super rare stuff coming kind of out of the blue and it's so overwhelming but it's Congrats. you know imposter syndrome to the max like how high does that imposter syndrome scale go i'm i think i blew through that roof a little bit oh well i'm glad you've gotten through it past it whatever it takes still there <laughs> still there but you know it's sometimes you just have to take action and put things out there yeah. and you know i'm totally with you on like the ai art being a way to i don't know like kind of create art in the background uh, Rev Dan Cat put it best when he's, you know, he, he got into plotter work uh, because it was something that he could make art while he was sleeping. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I can make art while I'm sleeping. And so it's definitely a way to be like expressive in uh, today's very, very fast moving world. We could do a whole episode easily just on the merits and, and even the detriments of AI art for sure. Hot topic right now. I, uh, you know, we were in the gallery together for Tur's opening and a lot of the people coming in really were asking those questions high level, mm -hmm. like what is the validity of this? And because it's so accessible, how much art are we going to see and how do you tell what's interesting or what's not? It's a great discussion to have. And I think the more open we all are about it, the more people kind of like get comfortable with it and form their own opinions and find the own, you know, the stuff that they gravitate towards the most so yeah absolutely clown vamp had an interesting twitter thread going on this week i don't have the link available and it's you know halfway out of my brain at this point <laughs> i don't know if you saw it it was about ai art and abundance mm. and about how maybe that's kind of a part of what it is so to speak and i'll find the link like we can't go into super detail that, now. actually okay i don't know if you remember anything more than i do I do think that the abundance is part of it, for sure. I mean, really, in some ways, it's um, similar to code-based generative art in that the algorithm can put out a 
abundant amounts of art. You know, this is AI might be at a different scale, but I think some of the themes that can actually come out through the art projects themselves are similar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the early works in any medium reflecting the nature of that medium is I think pretty common and makes a lot of sense. So if, if that ultimately helps people who aren't as familiar with AI art, um, understand it, understand what's interesting about it to them, that's great. That's great. Yeah. There's so much overlap with AI art and photography, you know, thinking about abundance and, you know, I don't know much about cameras, but from what I've seen from America's Next Top Model and Repulse Drag Race, which is my primary frame of reference, you can capture many shots per second. You know, <laughs> and it is about the the curation and like the understanding of what makes something good or appealing and really, you know, narrowing it down from like that broad divergence into like, this is the one. Sure. For, for sure. Um, yeah, you get a red camera and get whatever it is, 120 frames per second. I think we actually talked about this a little bit um, on our interviews, so I won't go deep, but just the, the analogs to photography's evolution as a medium are pretty direct between generative art and, and that. And I, you know, I kind of, you guys probably have heard, I consider AI and code-based art as part of the generative medium. And so, yes, definitely. Like you can take photos on your iPhone really quick. And I think it takes curation, takes community consensus, it takes advocation to really surface works that are most interesting. Actually, we, we did an article about it in one of our recent Tender Insights newsletters. So Okay. We'll grab the link to that and put it in the show notes. I think I remember reading that, but it's been a moment. And speaking about just the abundance again, the, the topic of generative art and you know how much it can be created and you know are people oversaturating the market. At some point, like last month or so, I went into ChatGPT and sussed out like, okay, so how much work did Monet release across his lifespan? It lived to be pretty old, produced a lot of stuff. And it was like more of that very analog. It's not even getting into like pop art, like Andy Warhol, who obviously put out a lot. And it's something like between that and, you know, how much the world has grown, the population shift. You know, I think the world is like nine times larger population than it was during like the 1800s or whenever he was alive and so people have a lot more room to produce a lot more work before you hit saturation and a lot of artists have a lot more time to release great work so and there's a lot more um accessibility of that right a lot more mm -hmm. ways to share it globally instantly yeah totally different world actually i think this is this is kind of the starting point of that article i just mentioned is this idea that we're kind of waiting for enough demand to then catch up with the supply that's here. Like it's as mm -hmm. if it's like this back and forth race and that's what's causing the cycles of the market. I don't necessarily buy into that. And so again, I just encourage you guys to read it and, and give a counterpoint, like hit us on Twitter or Discord and give a counterpoint. But I think it's an interesting discussion about what our expectations are for this market and for the space. In the traditional world, you know, those are just individual artists. But if you look at if you look at the amount of people creating art in the hopes of showing it in a gallery, let alone selling it, let alone selling it for enough money to make a living, let alone a good living, you know, there's such a tiny proportion of artists actually make it there. And so there are these mechanisms that kind of self-regulate with the available demand for collecting. And I think that ultimately this market, this generative art market is no different and so the, the gallerists of the world sort of play part of that role 
in focusing what demand there is on hopefully great works. And I think we have a need for that. And, and a lot of that's happening already. It's just part of the market dynamics. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think about the accessibility angle, because in all the art markets that we've been subject to for the last hundreds of years, it is very gatekept to a certain extent. And so waiting for the collectors to come, that is such a much bigger possibility in this generative art space that we have on the blockchain, especially on Tezos because of the the transaction fees being so low that it's not, you don't need to be in a first world country in order to be able to collect at reasonable prices. Yeah. You know, something that's accessible to anybody. So really interested to see where this goes in the next, well, we'll say 10 years. I don't know. 10 years is a good time horizon. This is the most exciting movement in art, I think, for the next decade, really. And there's just different hurdles, right? Like we don't have the accessibility hurdles. We have other hurdles. We have acceptance and stigma around perhaps NFTs and other things. So there's different hurdles to tackle and, you know, we will take some time. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. We're here for it. And we're here to literally, in your case, build for it. For sure. Yeah, I think being able to just see this much art is such a pleasure. That's what I'll say about the accessibility. You know, it's it's not easy to see a lot of contemporary art quickly, actually, I find. There are some sites that are doing it, but not a ton. Um, it's like literally hitting the pavement, going from gallery to gallery. And, you know, it's hard to really filter into the specifics of what you might like as a collector and really tune it because it might just be about like, is there anything that I like when I've gone out, hit the town and you know, seeing what I can see. Whereas, you know, we can go through FX, through Tender, through Object or Foundation. You can look at so much art relatively quickly and not only find things to love, but then really dial in on the things of, okay, maybe I really, really like a lot of these things. What do I really, really love? And kind of double click into that stuff. It's a great opportunity for collectors. Yeah. And I think that is a a decent segue of sorts into a article that you wrote called what I collect and you can give more of the spiel about that but you know there's a before we do that just there's another interesting aspect of everything that you're saying because as somebody who has really kind of had that art appreciating side of me kind of cut off like it was like phantom limbs in my body that really didn't come back onto my body until like this whole FX hash thing happened. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is something that is was deeply important to me in my childhood and something that I'd spent a lot of time doing and just things fall apart. And, you know, you start just being intensely interested in sports and then nothing else matters. Right. But there's also within the FX hash community and I guess generative art overall is like the ability to become very familiar with artists, I think, at a scale that is less easy in that traditional art world because people are super engaged on social media, on Discord, releasing frequently, and you're able to see the evolution of like some of these, especially new artists, really quickly. And that's just something that's really, really fascinating. And you know, I know that you have thoughts around art, artists, community, all of that stuff. So Yeah, I have lots of thoughts. I think that the, the accessibility to conversations around art is absolutely one of the most compelling parts of staying in this ecosystem and the communities around it that include artists and collectors, curators and more. And, you know, I just include the conversations with artists directly as part of that. It might happen with them popping into a Discord chat or having a Twitter space or a one-on-one. You know, I think 
some of the accessibility that was available early days with, with kind of all artists is kind of dwindling a little bit, understandably, as artists, certain artists get more and more busy. That's not always possible. I don't think that that makes their level of engagement or care for the community any different. And I would say the same for people who aren't as engaged for different reasons. You know, some people, they they know the toll that that takes, the amount of time that it takes. And it does take a lot of time to be in your DMs answering people and doing that. And I think a lot of people make a conscious choice to not focus there. You know, maybe they're focusing on their art. Or maybe they're focusing on their family. They're maybe, you know, and so... Um, I try not to take, and this is a little bit of the point in, in the most recent movements, is um, I try not to, with my collecting, take too much of a personal angle on, you know, is this person talking to me enough? Am I getting enough from them? Are they my friends? And then therefore just base my purchasing, my acquisitions on that. I think there's just a lot of other factors. And there's, like we were just talking about a minute ago, there's so much great art out there. You know, one of the things that I think about a lot as a little collecting test, almost similar, you know, it's almost similar to the the common refrain of the wall test. Is this art going to look great on my wall? That's not a perfect test, but it's really useful. And it's a great shorthand, I think, for collectors to talk to them, to each other about why they like things and also really to decide for themselves what they feel about it. So it's a good shorthand test. The other one that I like is just taking the nameplate off. If I'm really able to look at art and not know who made it, am I still really excited about it? And it's not to say that sometimes there aren't reasons or desire to acquire something with the thought of reselling it. That's fine. But I think just understanding what your motives are for yourself, you know, and really tuning what I like as a collector and that I want to really keep in my collection. I think that's a really valuable test to put on your own acquisition. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of what the most recent movements talks about. We put those out in, uh, it's an email newsletter, old school. Uh, we also tweet about it and announce them usually in Discord, but they're open to everybody. So I just want to mention that, that it's not like a tender pass holder thing alone. It's something that we try to put out every two weeks, roughly. Um, and we really try to take a stance in some of those articles that might be a little bit different than the dialogue that's happening on Twitter and Discord at the moment, and just offer another point of view to consider. Not mm-hmm. that it's right or wrong. They're opinion pieces completely. Steven Sandcat has been doing... The writing for them, he's phenomenal. Yet it's the whole newsletter. There is some more like reporting stuff in there about what's going on or what's coming up. So hopefully that's useful as well. But um, those opinion pieces are just meant to start a dialogue. I love that it's every two weeks and that it's the newsletter. And the reason I say that is because we've seen in the last couple of months a huge slowdown. You know, it's less frantic overall, just within the entire space in terms of what's releasing. And I think that's been really good. We talk about this a lot on the show just because it's forcing you to slow down and reflect and take stock of the things that you value and the things that you want to collect and the things that you want to flip. And, you know, there's a big analog with, I think, the Twitter sphere of sorts. And it's just hot take, hot take, hot take. Scroll through my feed, click on the thing that looks flashy and fun. And I hate that. I don't like Twitter. I'm going to buy that (laughs) that one. I don't like Twitter.tez. But as you said, it's a necessary evil. But you know, having the time to put out more long form pieces of writing content, not gen art, long form, <laughs> yeah. both. I, I just think that there's a connection there. I, I do too. I enjoy the long form writing podcasts. There's some great Twitter content out there too, but there's definitely a lot of stuff that's chasing, you know, chasing engagement. And I get it. It's hard to communicate outward and not get the feedback. 
And if you want that feedback, you're, you're using some of the mechanisms in social media that get them, you know, and that changes, you know, now different things get feedback than they did six months ago. Yeah. Um, so does that mean you change what you want to say or how you say it, or do you keep, keep steady? And so everybody has their own strategy. I'm kind of with you. I'm not personally, not even on social media. So that's not my background per se. I really appreciate the value of it and, and sharing information and leading to some of these longer conversations that can happen in a newsletter, that can even, even a little bit longer conversation in discord, bigger relationships. So, I mean, that's just to say that I think there's a lot of value in putting content out there, even if there isn't immediate feedback, Yeah. You know, even if you're not getting as many likes as you'd want or retweets or whatever, we won't stop with these newsletters. I hope a lot of the other long form content producers don't stop despite some of the slowdown. Because um, there's important things to be said, important conversations to be had. Yeah. And I, that's also analogous to what we've been doing with the podcast. You know, early days, not that many listeners, although there were a few, but it didn't matter. So, sometimes it's for the practice and sometimes it's for the expression, and which can be said about having these new platforms for releasing art at all. Sometimes it's just important to get things out there and to have something in the universe rather than keeping it inside. And so it's all good. I'm going to go through donations real quick, and then we can jump into the news and market stuff and all the other great stuff that we usually talk about. So starting out with Lil Saturn donated us a debug mode, number one, Impressions of Order. Klaus Wilke gave us two Universal Ray Hatchers, which was very kind. And then Melissa Wiederek came in with some crazy stuff. She donated Chromatic Flow number 10, Flowers of Progress, All Fold Sketch, Electric Hope, Dia Labuca, Uncontained, Leaving the Red, Rainbow Mountains. That was amazing. And then just as we were talking, Obi gifted us two twirl tickets. Moving on to some of the things that are happening in the overall ecosystem, maybe we can just talk about NFC Lisbon, which we talked about last week. The microsite for it just went up earlier this week. It is feels like home as a theme and it is featuring many artists that we know and love have you had a chance to take a look at any of these things like and there's also like the first works in progress from leonardo solas which is crazy cool oh i really like leonardo's work and some of the recent stuff that he's released i, I mean all these artists ella elsif and mj this is a, a great lineup and I know that there's more and more stuff happening in Lisbon, so it seems like a great place to have an event. Uh, I'm just looking at this website for the first time now, but it looks good. And so there's also an event. Is there, There's still an event coming up in Valencia, yes? Yeah, NFT Show Europe, which is in July. Marfa in September, which is just... I'm excited for your road trip and the live tweeting on this road. It's going to be very exciting entertainment. Yeah, uh, I was talking to somebody else about this, and I still think it's a great idea from a content perspective of not even live tweeting, just like live Twitter space for 36 hours of driving. So if enough people can give us feedback that that is a thing that they want, I can say this because Will's not here. Um, <laughs> then we could strongly take it into consideration. Oh. If you don't do it, maybe you can do like a post-photography uh, documentation series of your road trip and some of the craziness Ooh. that ensued. Thanks. That's a wonderful idea. Go for it. All right. We'll write that down. You know, one of the other things that we've always been talking about is the proliferation of platforms, you know, obviously versus the big one that popped up first, 
leveraging a lot of FX Ash artists. Um, but there have been so many, and we've talked about them kind of ad nauseum at this point. But maybe it's good to kind of catch up on what they're doing. The most exciting announcement from this week was Gen Arc as an upcoming show announced by Verse, curated by Alejandro and Ismahelio. And from what I can see, it is a potentially stacked lineup of people that we don't know who they are. But we know that Eric Swan is one of them, <laughs> based off of the uh, the work in progress, right? I think it's a, a great theme for a generative event right now, led and curated by two generative architects. So I think it it's um, an exciting concept to bring more artists into the space that you know are, are still native to generative work. Uh, I hope we see more of this. I think it just is like only one of the examples of adjacent professions, um, creative professions that are working in some sort of generative way. And, you know, that's architecture. I think about, I do think about photographers sometimes who are a bit more um, automated with their processes that could be considered generative. I know we'll talk about operator in a little bit. And, you know, I think of 3D artists and digital artists of different types working, you know, in the film industry and these other industries, I could see a lot more of them creating some great works for generative projects coming up. And so I think shows like this on Verse are a great way to increase that exposure a bit. I agree. You know, in the conversation that Alejandro was having, at the very least, it's, you know, extending that list to include interior designers and even like landscapers to a certain point, because it's all the systems. Uh, I just checked out the Verse site as well, and it looks like we're confirmed Studio Yorktown, Annabella and Alejandro, uh, a collaboration, which we talked about last week, and then something with Victor Doble. And these are all like very geometric pieces. Mm-hmm. So sort of similar to, I think, what Iskra did this week with Escape, which we will also talk about. Yeah, I know Alejandro shared a really comprehensive list in the Tender Discord of, uh, I don't know, must have been 25 architects also working as generative artists. Some of those were known to me and some of them weren't. It's really impressive how much crossover there is. Yeah. And that just makes me think of how much more crossover there could be with the right exposure to other architects. I wonder if like there's the gap with code, like learning P5 or some other form of JavaScript, you know, because I think we've seen all the gen architects come in and, you know, Studio Yorktown's first projects were him learning P5 and applying like his design aesthetic to within P5. Yeah. And then obviously just growing as a coder tremendously. Growing as a coder, but I think also limiting some of the outcomes, right? Like getting stuff to work in a browser when you're used to having native software that can do so much more is a challenge. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm working with Aranda Lash. They had somebody in their studio who is just completely dedicated to that process and to making things work in browser, but it's not easy. And I think it's worth it. The, the works are incredible and you can still do some amazing things. But I do think that some projects that might be pre-selected or not on chain or not even tied to their code live are going to also have really great opportunities to put up something really fresh in the space. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's more acceptance coming for that kind of release. You know, I think some of the AI releases have sort of normalized that a little bit. You've seen drops like Corey Haber's Saul, which, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not tied to the code in the contract or even through IPFS. But we know the artists, we know their process, they've been open about how they create these things. We know that it's generative works. And so I think that's going to open up 
an opportunity for people such as architects to release works um, that don't have to work in browser. And I think we're going to see some incredible, I think we're going to get our minds blown really by this kind of stuff. And the one more thing I'll say about that is that I believe AI is also going to play a big part in that for architects specifically. We're already seeing that with Tur, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, this is an architect who came up with a project of something that they would never build. They could barely imagine. And, you know, the AI is given feedback to, to bring it to a new place. I did a panel with actually Ben Aranda and Cooper Union about uh, a month ago about AI and architecture and generative processes and architecture. And it was really interesting from some of the other panelists hearing about the way that they integrate AI into their practice, like into their concepting phase of creating buildings. And um, that was feedback that I got actually at the show opening as well from a couple of architects. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, yeah, this is now our first 10, 20% of the project, rapidly coming up with concepts, seeing what interesting things come out that we might not have thought about before, and then letting that steer into a very methodical and rigorous engineering related process to actually get a building up. But there's another deviation, another path to be had with that, which is some of these art releases. So I do do hope and expect that we'll see a lot more. It's the going broad first and understanding what what possibilities there are and, you know, just anything that we could done to accelerate that process is huge. And that kind of is a segue to another project that's upcoming on Verse called Buttons by Jan-Robert Ligte, which apologies for the pronunciation. And that is currently going through an auction for the Mint Pass, similar to what happened with Atmospheres by Corey Haber. But the reason that this is a nice segue is because I work in the digital creative experience space. And I know that you do as well. And I'm so excited for generative AI to help kind of do that same sort of level of brainstorming within web design or app design, whatever design. And similar as what you're saying with architecture and buttons is basically a love letter to interface design and button creation. And so it was the kind of the same random thing. Yeah. I think that people are are using AI for what well, you guys were trying it for logo, for logo design, and people are using it for web design. I'm not sure what the success rate on that is, but you know, again, with that tangent away from design into art, I think that this work with buttons and their past work, J- I love JPEG. I think that's a you know conceptually really interesting project, great execution, fun to look at, like just kind of like mind blurring kind of experience with that art. I love it. And it says something about the times that we're in or the times that we've passed. And, you know, if I think this new work really fits their greater artistic statement about technology and, and art. So I'm excited about this new one. Yeah, me too. Right now there's four days left in the auction. The lowest winning bid is a dollar. I'm sure <laughs> that will jump up significantly. I know there was a there was a call out recently in Discord, like, hey, you bid for a dollar. It's only a dollar. I do think these auctions are fantastic. I love I love them. I would consider them past experiment and they're using them and they're using them effectively. I do think that the time frame of the auctions will I would imagine they'll continue to be tuned for days a long time. Yeah. Um, but we, a lot of the activity really does come at the end. There was a I think it was a VCA uh, Chromie Squiggle auction the other day. Okay. Yeah. I didn't 
participate, but what, what <laughs> happened in that crummy squiggle action? Well, there was it was hovering around, I think, like four ETH for a while, which is well below the floor. And of course, there's been a lot of action on crummy squiggles recently. And, you know, I think there was a couple of calls on Twitter, like, oh my gosh, there's these amazing deals. But of course, at the end, they, they shoot up. And I think, I don't remember what the final prices were. It was definitely above 17, 18 ETH. That's insane. And was it one of those auctions where the time frame kept expanding or was it just like eBay style, like whoever can put their bid in at the, like the last possible microsecond is the one who wins? I don't recall what that one was specifically. I know that the Corey Haber one had that mechanic. I believe you said you're going to make some kind of like blockchain auction sniper. Is that right? Some, somebody's oh yeah, that? absolutely. Great. Uh, great. I think somebody is that, you know, it's a great product <laughs> idea. I don't know how it would monetize and, you know, you know, how you would recoup the cost to build it, but that's fine. It's a thought experiment. Thought experiment. Yeah. But yeah, I love, I love seeing the auction mechanics coming out there and I'm excited about buttons. Yeah. The other cool thing about buttons, and this is both a good thing in it, and I have something to say. The buttons are clickable. They have their click state, but they don't have a hover state. Where's <laughs> the hover state on these buttons, Jan? It's ludicrous. How can it Man, be a button style guide if you don't have a hover state? But that's enough about that. I'll get my hover states later. <laughs> maybe it's a mobile only execution or something like this. Or, you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a statement around Hover. accessibility and <laughs> needing for things to be mobile optimized. Yeah. Okay. I Very cool. This has made me go back and look at um, Window as well. It's another great project. For yeah, that. that was one that always kind of, I would always see it and I'd be like, what, what the heck? What the heck is this? <laughs> there's, a, there's a nostalgia element, at least for me, with Window, uh, the aesthetic and seeing these panels move around. Because having... it's very much based off of like Windows 95. Three. I, I thought it was maybe even three. three oh, well, I, that, was be, that was before my time. I mean, and then like inherently it has that like Minecrafty bevel feel to it. That's part yeah. of it. I mean, it's definitely conceptual work like Buttons is. You know, for me, JPEG really stands out also because of just the aesthetic quality of it and that kind of like double take reaction that it, you know, I've looked at the project so many times and I still, you know, is it still loading? Like, am I waiting for the interlace? You know, I'm, I'm waiting for this thing to like pop into crystal clear, you know, rectangles and shapes. And no, I, I really like that piece a lot. I'll include links to these and some references in the in the notes. I mean, just looking at these, because I haven't really paid attention to this artist at all because, you know, FX hash, yay. Um, but as a body of work, it's so cohesive and it says so many things. And it's also digitally native in like a very like non-blockchain sense. Yeah, it's hard in digital to look beyond what's what's happening right now. And I think these, these works definitely kind of take a pause on that and, and force a little bit of reflection on how much has changed in just 30 years. Yeah. I was reading a, uh, a Twitter thread last night while I couldn't sleep, and it was about how AI will remove interface design altogether because there's like a paradigm of desire, action, result, in that there's a big space for AI to take out the need for action because it will be so predictive and personalized. It will be outwardly asking you to do a thing 
rather than you telling it to do a thing, if that makes sense. It kind of makes sense. It's a hard thing to get my head around. The example that they used was placing an order for Seamless. Say you, you go into Seamless. Let's say you always want sushi and the, find the restaurant, add the things to the cart, check out, blah, 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 blah. And it could be to the level of saying from a, like more of a conversational interface, hey, order me a California roll. And it's just like, boom, because yeah. it kind of knows us or can get to know us and it'll just find the most appropriate California roll for us in that moment. <laughs> and or it'll be like, bro, you always order California rolls at five o'clock. I'm going to place this order unless you tell me no. And so from a design perspective, it's something that can be very cool. I love generative AI. The predictive stuff can be really effective and it can be really inaccurate. You yeah. Know? And so it does make me wonder, does that mean like when you look at that scenario, that reality is, is the future that it's going to get way better such that everything has a predictive element that works well? For I think it? it's going to be ultimately bad because it's yeah. going to be the narrowing of things into a specific framework or like the subsection of California rural restaurants and be really hard for newcomers to come in. You know what I mean? I mean, I think that you can kind of aggregate a consensus on what the best California rolls are. Yeah. But how does a newcomer, if I decided like I want to create a California roll restaurant, <laughs> like how do I, like how do I market myself to these generative AI platforms so that I can be included in the algorithm? Because it's um, going to be so biased towards, you know, the things that are popular now. Right. How does newness enter yeah. in, into that equation? But even even with what exists now and what opinion, opinions exist now, that's a very simple. I mean, there's a maybe I don't know all about California rolls, and I would suggest trying some other sushi. But there's not <laughs> that much variation in California rolls, you know. But when you look at art yeah. and how are you going to create predictive recommendations on what art somebody likes, I don't have an answer. Um, I'm not even sure I have a hypothesis. But I think there's still like a long way of evolving the things that surface stuff that's interesting to people. Yeah. To that angle, perhaps, you know, we could always go back to that old, um, from many years ago, the first time that an AI beat a person at Go. And they did it by making that completely random, unexpected move that nobody has ever made in the history of Go. And like, they did it in like the first 10 minutes. And then the human just, oh, that's it. I just lose. Like, I've never seen this move before, but I'm looking at it and I lose. And it's able to understand what might exist outside of the realm of human thought process possibility, if that makes sense. And so maybe there's a lot there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of things that it doesn't need to be so narrow as the predictive analytics that we've seen so far, but, you know, going outside of the box. I totally agree. And, uh, you know, again, that's one of the most exciting things to me about AI art is not only being able to bring an idea to life with relative ease, but to find your way into happy accidents with relative yeah. ease. Like that, you know, you can be printing photographs or, you know, taking photographs and or painting and just waiting, you know, trying to like loosen yourself up to encourage these happy accidents to happen and then try to find something that is hopefully the nugget of something that you can then pursue and evolve. And, you know, with AI art, you could get, hundred of those in a day. Yeah, and so, absolutely. you know, it, it doesn't mean that you've cut out process and you've cut out artistic intent and, and direction. Now the issue is which of those do you pursue and which of those not only are, Hey, that's really cool, but which of them actually support the message that you want yeah. to communicate. So it's the emergence. 
of it, so to speak. Like in the thing, uh, my uh, super rare Genesis, you know, I was just having like some awful issues with in-painting and, you know, finding a space and, you know, in-painting it hundreds of times, probably not hundreds of times, dozens of times, and just kind of feeling, seeing what each result kind of evoked within me. And a lot of them are awful and just like, this looks terrible, but out of the ones that felt true, you know, what is the one that feels truest to me? in this moment or am I most vulnerable? And I think that's something that's really, really beautiful. Yeah. You can't cut that out of the process. AI can't cut that out of the process. No, not yet. (laughs) Of course, there's the moment where we all just turn into either bodies in the matrix or little balls of perfect light and don't need any of this stuff. But until then, I think we're needed. Yeah, it makes me think of that episode of Black Mirror, the San Junipero episode, which is the best episode. It's the best. I'm it's not the sure happiest I, episode. I'm not sure I've seen it. It's the one where it's like with old people, they can choose to cross over into this virtual world called San Junipero. And it, basically it's the uploading of consciousness or consciousness, air quotes, abound. Um, and that coincides with the death of their mortal body. Cool. I'll check that out. I've, I've missed a couple of the episodes. I kind of like... I find that every season has one kind of happy or uplifting (laughs) episode that's like less like dystopic dark or at least objectively so and that was that one for the season I think it's season three or season four cool thanks for the recommendation yeah continuing our platform talk oh my gosh the big one is Nudaru on Genify we talked about this a couple of weeks ago but uh, his release there Orboritum V2 I don't know what happened to V1 it is out there. It's live on Genify. It is so cool. I mean, it's a huge jump up from, I think, the the trees that he was putting out on FX Hash like way last year. So it's cool to see his evolution as an artist. And there are still over 200 available to mint. And they are 3,000 lamb, which is about $6.50. I had to do that wow. conversion. They're only $6. Yes. But you have to be able to get lamb, and I don't know how easy that is to get in the United States. So his work on Verse Lake Festival, yeah, two hundred pieces, has a floor of three hundred eleven dollars. Wow, this is three hundred pieces. They're selling for six dollars, and there are still many available. Granted, that's where chain supremacy comes into play, right? At least at this point, yeah, uh, and accessibility. And accessibility. You know, the, I've had a lot of conversations about platforms on other chains and just openly asking and wondering, like, what, you know, what are the, what are the benefits? What's your, what's your value proposition that's different than other platforms that exist? I would ask the same of any minting platform on Tezos or Ethereum too. And oftentimes, I'm not sure if this is the case with Genify, but I'll just say oftentimes the refrain is, well, we have, we have other collectors here on our chain. Mm-hmm. who would love access to great art as well. And I think, and we think that that would bring new collectors to the artist's work. Um, I know that's also often our approach to these artists to bring them into their platform and say, hey, we've got different collectors here. Yeah. And so, yeah, it just makes you wonder where they are. Yeah. Well, I think that Genify, it's, I think the collector base is largely based out of East Asia. So that is definitely a slightly different market, I think, from what we see on FX Hash. Because if you're in that entire hemisphere, FX Hash is just terrible for you. 
it's if you want to drop, you have to wake up at three in the morning, wake up, like log in, mint, go back to sleep. And so perhaps from a release timing perspective, this will be much more favorable to, you know, you know, that entire side of the world. You know, I'm looking through this project and the preview image that I'm seeing at least does not do it justice. You know, mm. when I'm looking through the images that are here, I don't know, I'm scrolling down to number 38. It's kind of like the best of all of Nudaru's, Matt Perkins' trees, mm -hmm. like with the groves and everything, with also cold mountain. You know, it's not just trees in this. There are also entire landscapes that don't really have trees. And it's mm. more about the overall landscape itself. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the art's great. And you're right, it is making use of different techniques and scenes that he's worked with before in terms of the you know the central tree and the background mountains and yeah skies and there's just there's a lot of variety and it's a great it's a great project um I, if this came to fx hash i'm sure it would have sold like bananas at seven tez or whatever that would be these days i guess this is the segment of other platforms on on our show today and more platforms can bring some really interesting things i think that we'll see some of that coming out but there's just more competition for less attention. And yeah. so that means that the standouts have to be that much more standout and they have to do that from the get-go. So I think trying to run a playbook like, hey, we've got something that's low price and we want to just like do it the way FX hash started up, go low price and then get a bunch of attention. It's just, you can't run the same playbook of something that was a year and a half ago in a yeah. completely different environment. So I think it, it goes back to what is the real differentiator? Like look at M-Props. You know, yes, they had their first release was uh, inexpensive and did have a lot of market activity, but it's also a completely different platform. Yes, completely 100%. Anything else out there is very exciting. Very exciting to see how they've evolved already. I know they'll be doing some pretty interesting things coming up too. So, you know, that's, that's I think, the big question as, you know, my fellow builders out there are trying to figure out what to tackle next. Um, with their very valuable time and you know resources and all of that is uh, really trying to figure out what what hole you're filling. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, I think I don't know if we talked about this specifically, but you know, there's like that kind of that the concept of there being in like a gen art bubble or maybe a gen art platform bubble. Obviously, you talk about it in real estate. I'm thinking about it more in terms of what everybody was saying ten years ago about about craft beer. Like there are so many craft breweries that like there's so many opening up that there's no way that this population of craft beer drinkers can sustain them all. I don't know where we are at that point quite yet. I think we converted a lot more drinkers to being craft beer enjoyers. Absolutely. Um, That's such a cool analogy I haven't thought about before. You know, 40 years ago in, in America, unfortunately, you'd hear a lot of conversations like, oh, you're drinking a fancy Heineken. Yeah. <laughs> It was an or import. A, it was an import. Or a Newport or a Sierra Nevada. Like those were like really esoteric beverages. And now, you know, yes, there are so many craft beers. Uh, as you know, I lived in Vermont for a little while and I could go into a store with 300 different beers that were all made just in Vermont. I do think that ultimately it sort of nets out with a lot more widespread appreciation. We had that in beer and that yeah. I mean, it means that there will be people and there have been breweries that I'm sure have failed because they couldn't capture the market share necessary to sustain business. But there are a heck of a lot more craft breweries now 
than, yeah. as you said, there were 40 years ago or 10 years ago and way more being successful. More is more unless you <laughs> don't make it type of scenario, in which case, I don't know. It's interesting from an artist's perspective, too. I think about Verso. They had a couple of drops, including one with Anna Lucia. And now I think the only way to trade those tokens is on object. Mm-hmm. You know, like that entire place or that entire site that was there to support the art and kind of market it and be a home and marketplace for it just disappeared. They might be still kicking, but they're not not in the way that they were or trying to do. Yeah. You know, I bet they had a lot of competing forces and a lot of challenges come up. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is not this is not the interview episode about Tinder, but I just will say from a platform building perspective, there's just, there's a lot to do. And um, I think, I, I don't mean this, and I think like objectively, the platforms that are doing the best are funded. And, you know, to have that kind of cushion behind what you're developing really is a huge boost to being able to plow through the ups and downs of the market. And to yeah. build faster build faster, have a team that can do a variety of responsibilities. So, you know, when I see a platform come up and go away, it's kind of sad. That's like somebody's individual time often that yeah. was invested and didn't go where they expected to. Taking many steps back, that's the way it's going to go. And there's, like you were saying, there's a survival of the fittest kind of um, reality to how things are going to evolve. Do I think that there's going to be only one platform in the future? I don't, but I think that there's going to be very, very strong platforms and there's a lot of platforms that are going to have to go away. Yeah. I mean, on a long enough time horizon, it'll all go away. But, you know, as long as there's something (laughs) like object, right, kind of being that that backbone that kind of supports all of these contracts or something like it, you know, then it should be fine. It'll just be a little, you know, time box or everything that we're seeing and experiencing now. I mean, long enough timeline, they can go away too. So can OpenSea. True. Blockchain is open. People can develop that stuff. It's not easy. And there's there's not really a, um, a financial model to support it right now. That's why I talk about funding. Like even what Object is doing, I did some napkin math to try to figure out how they support the kind of volume that they do with their with their commissions. It's not an easy business. OpenSea might be, a, well, OpenSea is obviously a lot different, but moving forward, you know, the more that their commission gets crunched, I don't know how you run that business. It's volume. At that point, it becomes a volume game. And then you have to, and OpenSea especially, competing against the likes of X2Y2, Blur, whatever other markets are out there. And people like Artblocks, for example, bringing their marketplaces in-house and Verse trying to capture more of that, you know, that secondary volume for themselves. And so it becomes a much tougher proposition, which is, I think, the value of, you know, those platforms also letting people mint there and that being like the native marketplace for them totally. <laughs> Anything else we can add to that conversation around uh, <laughs> our, our lovely platform bubble? <laughs> I feel like now is when the, you know, the guy eating the popcorn on the couch, that gift comes out and it's just like, all right. Let's, let's... Yeah. Looking through our notes. I think the next thing to really talk about, and it is related to platforms, is last week our episode was titled False Spring because it was like, oh, maybe it's alive, but maybe it's just the tulips coming out and they're going to soon die to the frost. Um, But this week has kind of felt like a continuation of love and appreciation for generative art 
partially due to some of what we've been seeing on FX hash, but also it feels like there's a been a, a shift away from the the meme coins over on ETH and qualitatively speaking, and just kind of sensing through the new tender integrated ETH slash FX hash sales feed, which I really hated at first. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Um, but now that I'm able to kind of get a sense of what's happening on ETH, I appreciate it much more. I heard I heard on Seth's interview that you guys are a generative art podcast, not just- We a, are a generative art podcast now. For me, it's been valuable too. I'm spending most of my personal time in the tender discord of all discords. And so it's hard to pop in a say, block talk and see what's happening there. So to see it all together has been not just great, but it, the timing is kind of funny. You know, we released it maybe two weeks ago, right before Tur launched because- it includes Artblocks engine projects in the feed as well. But to see it all together actually is really um, better, gives a better sense of the generative art market. And man, there's been a ton of movement, a mm-hmm. ton of movement on Artblocks. I mean, yes, there has been a little, up to, a good uptick on FX hash. I'd love to see it. Um, a lot of it's coming through collection offers. But wow, I think that one day last, maybe it was earlier this week or last week was they said the biggest art block secondary day since last March. Was that because of Fidenza sold? I'm sure <laughs> a couple in one day. So there's a few Fidenzas, there's a ringer. There's been a ton of squiggle sales. Um, yeah. But also some of the, uh, really almost all the projects are selling something. Some of the lower floor projects have also yeah. seen some really good movement. And I think that's encouraging to see as well that there's sort of like a transfer of not just squiggles or not just something that it's interest and it's movement. And, you know, there's been some of these moves in the past that have kind of then reverberated into FX hash. And so I kind of wonder what's going to happen in the coming week or so with FX hash acquisitions. We'll see. Cause we do follow a little bit. Yeah. But like even just seeing like the squiggle sales go overnight, you know, there are a handful overnight. And when you're talking like, nine ten eth per transaction like that is just blows my mind and just the amount of volume that can be pushed through on ethereum uh, versus what we're doing over here on tezos so yeah i think i think there's i think we're gonna see more movement i think some of the secondary movement that's happened has created particularly thin floors i think some of the secondary movement has happened on projects where the floors were already thin Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some cases that might be bringing in new listings, but new listings higher. And so it's definitely creating a good amount of market movement on the FX hash side. What I'm observing, and this is just it's well, observational. Yes. Observational is more projects closing the gap between collection offers and floor and, um, you know, combination of people lowering the floor and combination of collection offers going up perhaps. But I think, you know, whether that's overall market going up or not, I think it's good for price discovery and kind of tuning that in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Like punk welts and small skulls are the big things that I constantly see like, hey, this is, you know, 70% of floor. Like, obviously I brought these pieces way above floor. Uh, I'm not going to like, select that offer quite yet, but it's interesting to see. And also looking at the sales feed, I see way fewer sales through collection offers. This was somebody bought this like for the price it was listed at which I think is another a good sign of people wanting to buy and not people not necessarily looking for the deals that they were looking for before. Yeah, agree. Primary two, like seeing that, seeing action, you know, to kind of go back into Ethereum, 
some of the primary action on projects has been quite positive too. Iskra's drop, Analysia's drop, the operator drop, obviously a huge secondary movement, you know, that these are projects, you know, selling out and yeah, it's a good sign. Yeah. So just from a crazy sales of the week, because I know that we're over an hour of talking so far and we have art to talk about. I'll talk at 1.5. Okay. And we'll speed it up further. (laughs) Uh, Crazy sales that have happened this week. Uh, I don't know if you've watched any of the sales feed things happening, but Ethereal Microcosm, a number 148, went for 385 tens on collection offer. That felt like, oh my gosh, I wish I had that. Punctwell number 41, which is one of those ones that is like the multi-tiers. It's not just Horizon. It's like banded. Rank number seven went for 146 tes. I would have bought that for at least 150 if I had known. It's all relative, right? Like Punkwell wasn't even around whatever it was eight months ago, six months ago. And it's gone way up. It's coming down. It'll go up again. Same with Ethereal Microcosm sat at like 600 for felt like a year. I don't know. It wasn't a year, but it felt like a long time. And then it pounced up to, I don't know, 2000. Something around there. And it's just the normalization, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, I don't try to take too much emotion in these these sales coming lower. Um, I do think an interesting mechanic that came to mind, I shared this in the Discord, but when a collection offer comes through and um, somebody wants to accept it with a really nice piece, it could be interesting for that that acceptance to go into a very quick auction and to have that basically the starting price basically be what the collection offer is. So if it's a, if it's a, a punk well with, I'm just going to take a round number, a hundred Tez collection offer and somebody wants to accept it, but it's a really special piece and they could probably get more to like have it be at just an, even if it's an hour auction or a four hour auction, and have it go see if there are bidders starting at a hundred, you know, you're going to yeah. get that sale. It's already there. Pop it up because I love that. could be interesting. I think it's really born out of the pain of seeing like hollow hollows and bird hollows and somebody Not having like, a shot at it. Oh my gosh. You know? So, and there's a lot of those. Yeah. We've talked about having um, English auction mechanics for secondary as well. You know, obviously, if that's just kind of the way that things get sold across the board, it's way too many auctions. But yes. like if the person who is putting it up for auction, like there was a five test cost to do it or something like then it makes more sense. I don't know. But like in the bear market, it definitely feels like something that's necessary. It'd be really interesting to see how that might work in a bull market as well. That's true. I mean, um, there's lots of different approaches to it. You know, on a foundation, the auction has to be started by a buyer. So the auction doesn't actually exist until somebody's placed it placed a, uh, a bid that would fulfill. Yeah. And so I do think it's an issue if you're trying to start auctions where you just request people to buy it and you don't have a buyer. So yeah. to have a confirmed buyer as the starting point, I think it's really important in a broad, broad ecosystem like FX hash. Yeah. Um, like that plus a reserve. Yeah. Plus a willing seller, right? Like you could just to place bids on a random piece isn't going to work either. Something to, to think about, because I think it would add more, um, more interesting dynamics. Now, I'm sure that this is something that Verse would probably do just because Verse is doing literally everything, but we'll see. On the positive side of things, and I think that this is one that may not go to that auction as 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 you said, was a really cool sale of a Sekia 
number 251, which went for like two or three times the floor at 2,800 Tez. Oh, which is was, that the micro? And, yeah, it was the it was the blue and white one that was, I guess, a micro. It was yeah. very cool to see. There's a lot of love for Oseki out there. I'm looking at that one to see if that's the micro that I minted. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not. No. I definitely sold one early. That's okay. A lot it's, of people sold their Osekias early. I bought another Oseki that I loved. Yeah, it's good to see some some action like this. I feel like maybe a bit more, again, back on art blocks, you're seeing people paying premiums for special pieces. Um, but for overall ecosystem, it's a great indicator, even if you know there's less that stand out on FX right now. I feel like they're coming. Was it, actually, now that I say that, wasn't there also a red uninhabitable sale recently? Yeah, there was for 3,300 Tez. It's not bad. I mean, I'm sure there's red uninhabitable holders who think that's inexpensive. But... I think that as a red uninhabitable holder, I think that's really inexpensive. <laughs> But it's it's a good sale in this market. Um, I do think you're seeing similar kind of action on crummy squiggles, like people going good bit above floor to get some of the special pieces, and you know ultimately that pulls the the whole market along, which is good. Yeah. So that's the market talk. Let's maybe transition to some of uh, the projects that came out this week. Uh, we have four lined out here. Uh, I. The two biggest we can talk about first, and neither of them are on FXash. So which would you prefer we start with? Human Unreadable or Escape? Let's start with Human Unreadable. Okay, this is a project that I think you're excited about. I'm very excited about this. I think it's something completely, well, I think it is something completely different than what we've seen really in generative art as we experience it day to day around blockchain and and art blocks and FX hash, just to see something so so new, um, so so multimedia, so concept driven, and obviously the support of the curation team at Art Blocks to bring this to life is all really great to see. And then I don't want to go back too far into market already, but to see the love that's received on the secondary market is really promising as well. Not just for the market, but for the art, it's promising that there's uh, people looking at. What's the what's the heart of this? What's the heart in this artwork, and um, that it means something to that many people is is really promising. Yeah, and you know when I first saw that this was coming to Artbox Curated, you know, obviously operator, big names in the uh, overall gener- generative community. But after you know seeing the Sasha Styles and Nathaniel Stern piece kind of stall, this is similarly high concept in a way, and so I was worried, but. It brings me so much joy, as you said, to see this flourish from a market perspective. It's like such a good sign. And, you know, obviously also the work is amazing too. And, you know, everything that happens beyond the work. Because it's not just, you know, here's a pretty image that is stored on Artbox. There's actually a performance element of it too, and kind of two steps. Absolutely. I, I do think um, it's... A- Sometimes it might feel hard to tell what's going to really resonate with a broader collector group and what's not. I do think that ultimately the general market still has a large appreciation for the look of the token. Mm-hmm. And I think that these are gorgeous and that's helped it stand out for sure. But obviously there is a much bigger story. And again, great to see embrace of that. At the end of June, you'll be able, anybody who holds a piece will be able to go to the operator site and get a second token that 
uncovers, you know, what the choreography of your piece is. And that the art blocks piece and that token, they'll be bound together. And so they, they'll always be treated as one, which is super cool. And then later on, and I think they're still figuring out all of the logistics, the choreography from the first 100 pieces will be stitched together and it'll be actually performed live. Oh, wow. Do they have a venue for that? Uh, venue to be determined. But Very that's cool. something that's really exciting. And it just makes me think of, I don't know, I don't want to say a brand activation because that feels weird and corporate and dirty. But when it comes about bringing excitement around like the extensibility of the piece, that's yeah. something I really like. Absolutely. They really hit on so many different levels with this project. And I see there's there's signed prints that are going to be available, the performance, the the blockchain mechanics. Like to, I don't know enough about uh, about how the, the tokens will work to be connected to each other like that, but that's very cool. <laughs> that's really, you know, pretty impressive little feat. So a lot of excitement there. Did you mint one? I didn't. I just... I did not. My, Do you have regrets my... about that? Oh, well, yeah, but I just didn't have the Ethereum. <laughs> my my ETH collecting practices don't reflect my desires, but I can definitely appreciate it even without collecting it. I know it's hard sometimes. Yeah. Um, the other non-FX project that we wanted to call is Escape by Iskra. It was released through Tonic, 325 editions, a Dutch auction that started at 2 ETH, and it ended up minting at the bottom tier of 0.25. The same with, you know, everything with Tonic. It comes with a free print, which is super cool. And they ran an auction um, this morning to see which of the five lucky people would get a plotted piece out of it. I love that from from Tonic. They're, they do a great job. They do. And um, I love that extra mechanic of the, the plot lottery. There's definitely, there's times when it might be the highest bidders that get something. And to do it sometimes just randomly is really nice too. Again, the work is great. You know, she keeps a super tight palette in this project, like some of her other works, and just the sense of space that you get. It goes back to the architecture, right? It does. It really does. I mean, it's, it's you know, like I would say like uninhabitable in some of her other work. It really, there's a, there's a separation between you as a viewer and the scene that's encapsulated in the work. And I think it really, it uses the medium in a really interesting way and in a very native way to put you in the observer's role of this self-contained space. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of really cool elements within them. Like you really want to go explore each of these little scenes. And it's very, you know, the symmetry kind of adds this like almost Kubrick-like mm -hmm. drama to most of these environments and sort of the combination of the rectilinear and the curvilinear things coming together also just makes them, it makes you really want to explore them. And yeah. it does it in relatively simple device. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of visual complexity to them, but they're, they feel very accessible from a viewing perspective. Like mm -hmm. I feel very comfortable with them. I think part of that's with the symmetry, but I just love the series. And, you know, getting back to like that blueprint type, it is something that is familiar within our visual language and like the things that we talk about. And I also really feel an affinity for the ones that are more like cylindrical. There's something about the softness of like the cylinders that I think is really represented elsewhere in Iskra's work. It's something that you can even see in like the birds, like with just like the way that it curves uh, versus mm. the hard angles. And the one that I'm looking at on the, the collection preview site, it's 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 stunning it is she also it's has so subtle 
there's also these um, different planes that are kind of coming at you too. Mm-hmm. And it, in some ways, that's like conflicting with the thing I'm saying about it being like these separate environments. It kind of brings you into it too. Like some of these planes are kind of like at a seemingly at an angle that come at you. And yeah, I love I love all the variety in here. And yeah, the work is so good. I'm looking at number 295, which is, you know, we've talked about squares and we've talked about cylinders, but this one is just, it's like almost diamond-like in its shape. It's very nice. So that was Escape. And then, you know, from an FX hash perspective, you know, there are two projects that are, I don't want to say they're sort of similar. They just use similar mechanics in many respects. And that is Destructures by Nicholas Daniel and Aperiodic by, by Kyle. So we have two projects, but three first names. <laughs> That's quite an observation. Very good. Yeah, thanks. I worked really hard for that one. <laughs> yeah, they're both really interesting projects. I think Aperiodic is really well-crafted. It uses some you know, familiar palettes and some familiar devices, but it does them in a really interesting way. Some of the kind of like curved folding and some of the... Um, more subtle variations that's built in. You see some like really wiggly lines in there and some crossover shapes and, and the, the kind of like rectangular underlying grid expanding and warping mm-hmm. and doing some fun stuff for sure. So again, I think it's really well-crafted collection. Yeah. I don't know if this is technically a, a flow field or not. Uh, that's my lack of coding experience and knowledge come here, but I'm with you on the palettes very landlines like it's very like fidenza like in terms of some of the colors that are coming through but from the design perspective i think it's well constructed and really really pleasing and i think a really great progression from what kyle did with strange lands which is has a 35 tes floor or something in that how does it uh-huh, uh-huh. and while strange land does some really sweet stuff i think that aesthetically speaking there's more cohesion and i think that the the average is much better on a periodic than strange lands it's very cohesive whereas i think to jump to the other one destructures is a little less cohesive um and there's some outputs that feel really wild wild in kind of like an unfinished way or an unsettled way and then there's some mm. that i think are really interesting in their 3d-ness to me those are the ones that stand out that are more obviously 3d shapes still warping and overlapping and doing some funny things but i'm going down number 10 yeah number 10 is absolutely like bonkers cool i, I pulled that one out immediately yeah 37 39 so it was kind of like a style in there and maybe it took a lot of the other ones that are to grab me a little bit less maybe, but they might hit with other people really well so it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely interesting in that sort of level of variation yeah these two projects were definitely the ones that made me feel like fx hash was coming alive a little bit you know for a while there i had these marked as mintable you know in in our notes document hello hello baby <laughs> but you know that quickly ceased because they minted out they were slow mints and which is fantastic and then the thing that really struck home is i ended up minting three d structures like all within like the last 100 or 150 mints I was able to sell one to cover the costs of all the others. Wow. You know, it, it was like FX hash of your. It was one of the um, white ones. So it felt a little bit special. It's a little bit more rare. Again, I think that these are really nice taste level. Some s- stick out more than others, as you said. But given that Nicholas is a art box curated artist, 
oh hey look what you can get on tezos right really good to see you know some of these pieces selling out on primary and a couple of resales definitely little signals little signals add up little signals inform other people's actions and so just good to see the interest happening around these absolutely i mean i think the one thing that makes me a little bit doesn't make me pause but bullseye i think has 50 of these so it's one person <laughs> controlling 10 percent of the market uh-huh. but you know also that shows great conviction so yeah those are the fx hash projects that i think really stood out this week in terms of making sure that the primary and secondary seem slightly alive um maybe let's move on to shout outs and looking ahead yeah let's do it i think there's some interesting stuff would you like to oh, go you, you can take your first shout out whatever you want oh boy can I do vibe? Yeah, you can do vibe. I like vibe a lot. Very pleasing to just sit with, very calm. I know we hear a lot of like shorthand around things that just move slow, but to me this kind of sits on its own in color usage and the, just the softness of it feels very photographic to me. You know, like almost playing with photograms in a mm-hmm. color dark room. So I love the way that the colors come together and undulate and fill the screen when you open it up live. Yeah, I really, I really dig this project. There's still a little over half to mint, but like you said, still mint's okay. I still have to get mine. You know, I called it out last week. It reminds me of Chromantics uh, by Harry Isaac, just in terms of like that slowness. There's, I would say, even a bit more movement than Chromantics, and it's a little bit broader. I think, you know, sometimes it's, it's even just a matter of the coding evolving. And so the performance out of this, for me, at least on my machine, is quite good and quite smooth looking. There's no noise that's kind of like, you know, coming up through the through the rendering. So I really like that piece. There's actually a couple of projects by one artist that's been in discussion in the Tender Discord, uh, OCM, I forget, OCM and some numbers, but they've released a ton of projects on FX Hash, and a lot of them are still minted. They're kind of all different price points, some of this some, some of their projects have minted out, but I think a couple of folks called each other back to some of the past ones with some of the more recent works being really interesting. They're all emojis. So there's like a pet emoji one or, you know, like an animal emoji project. And then there's a, looks like flowers and earth emoji project. They perform really poorly on my machine, but they look gorgeous. And that actually got me to go back and mint some of an earlier project called Time and Again, which has some incredibly fine line work, pretty linear arrangements. And then there's a previous project called Razor and Tie with a little bit more of like a circle and radiating shape, almost like Dreamcatcher-ish way of using similar line work. Also really beautiful. Um, So... Some of the discussion in the Discord was about not knowing who the artist is and what their background is and what it's, you know, but the art itself is really interesting and a lot of it's relatively inexpensive. So it's yeah, hard to pick some up. Yeah, I've been like looking at OCM projects for a really long time as they've been coming out. And I think sometimes it's, you know, they've been coming out when the market's been down and there's less interest or when the market's hot and there's interest in other places. And a project that they released a couple of weeks ago. It was originally like 300 editions, 200 Tez. <laughs> and, you know, that's what I've seen for most of the work that they've done is that the initial primary was super high and they've changed the price down over time, which is great from a market perspective. But, you know, obviously, if you see that 200 Tez price tag, you see it and you forget it because of the nature of the feed. Yeah. And I think that project is now 16 Testament, which may have been still high but more palatable 
uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I, I agree, the aesthetics are super nice. Yeah, the I think one of the challenges with projects like some of these that we're talking about and, and many others, uh, Vibe I would include in this and many other projects is that when it's not minting out and the price is you know, more than nominal for whatever that means to a particular collector, there's a lot of pressure on getting the right mint, if you care. And I do. Like, so for me personally, you know, my strategy was a little bit less of like buy two to cover cost with selling one. It was more like I'd buy two to sell two and buy one that's more expensive that I really, really wanted. <laughs> and so I think like pricing on some of the different OCM projects, while it's changed and it might actually be variable within their projects, if you look at it right now, a lot of them are relatively affordable. Um, I think one of the issues that I find sometimes is not, not even with the affordability, but with, you know, if, if you're collecting and you want a specific palette, a, a specific type of output, it can be a lot adding up if you're going through mints to get what you want. Whereas in a different market, you could buy that one or two, sell them, and then buy back into the palette you want. That's that's what I did all the time, all the time. And I miss that a lot, actually. And I think I would be minting even more if I knew I had a bit more control over even something as simple as a palette. For different projects might be a different attribute, but palette's one that comes up a lot for me. And um, I wonder, makes me wonder a little bit, actually, about maybe a more common use of params. You know, so there's, there's some projects we've seen that make full use of the params or do something super creative with it, like Pensado Amano or, you know, Universal Ray Hatcher. So there's those, absolutely. And there's going to be more stuff that we haven't even dreamed of yet. But I think also for certain projects, like just giving some flexibility on something like Palette could be really interesting for yeah. some projects as a normal release. Last week or two weeks ago, it was M. Dollinger with uh, Sir Convolutions. That's a params project where it was only... Uh, the only param was palette. In some respects, I, I think the the critique we had on it at the time is that for something so simple, I think that the params kind of hurt the performance of that project because people are lazy. That was thesis number one. And thesis number two is that it doesn't drive primary, like that gotcha game, gambling to get the get to get a palette. And when you have con immediate control over what you want. And so it could lead to fewer primary sales overall. But that's definitely one to look at and because the palettes are really nice. And then, you know, you sort of had that with Reunion from T. Boswell last week, where that was one of the main things that people were looking for. Yeah, I think people had a lot of fun with that, with Reunion. And, you know, it's just another dynamic that artists can play with. That's the FX hash ethos is to, you know, give the tools and let people use them in different ways. I think there are probably some artists that might not have as much heat around their drops. They're probably pretty aware of that and i think in those cases it might be one of one of the tools that they have to maybe drive a little bit more activity on their works and so yeah ocm's work kind of brought that up for me that there's mm -hmm. probably a ton more mints that i would love if i had a, just that little bit more control over what i got knowing that there isn't an active secondary coming yeah and that's where we get collector curated i love verse and that's one of the downfalls and joys of generative art is that surprise yeah, for sure. I it's mean, more fun to be surprised in a hot market when you know you can sell and buy back in. I think so. Sometimes I love that excitement too, the random mint. And there's definitely great projects where that makes most sense. It definitely is tied into the market though as well. Whether it's the right approach or not, you got to take the market into factor. So let's move on to looking ahead. The first item that I have in looking ahead is actually minting right now. And it's Hoos by Ada Ada Ada, which is another database project from her talking about the split of household 
work specifically in Denmark. And so it has a little bit of something to say, which I love. Um, there's a series of tweets about the work that we can talk about and I'll link in the show notes, but uh, I minted one or two while we've been chatting. Definitely check it out. It is still available to mint as of Friday, 1.30 Eastern. Oh, you've got, you've got multitasking down. I am not a mint and call video kind of person, but definitely Ada, Ada, Ada continues to push conceptual approach to their work. I really appreciate that. Other things that looking forward to include two art blocks drops um, by FX hash artists, not their, their own artists, but also on FX hash. So meaningless by Amy Goodchild coming out on May 30th and speak to me by Lisa Orth coming out on June 1st. So a nice uh, one-two punch there i'm really excited for these and to see what they do and we'll see if the fx hash collector group follows them there and you know seeing how they're perceived within the art blocks community i might uh rejoin block talk to do a little bit more examination i know there'll be a lot of talk even in the fx and tender discords there will be in block talk i think we all know the kind of lead up process it takes to be accepted into an art blocks drop and so i recommend any artist that gets to that place and it's an exciting moment for both of them and the work's really gorgeous and then, you know, just from a podcast perspective, next week, we'll, Will will be back and we'll have our monthly market index update, which will be exciting to see. And next Wednesday, or I guess in two days, depending on when you're listening to this, um, you should be able to listen to our uh, interview with Valerie Whitaker from Trillatech, which I think that you'll enjoy coming from the that art world background. And I've said before, I think it's one of our best interviews yet. So 100% check that out. I know you mentioned that maybe a lot of people had not heard of Valerie and her role in the ecosystem and with Tezos, um, but I think it, I, I haven't, obviously I haven't heard it, but I'm really interested too. And I think a lot of your audience will be interested to hear um, her perspectives. And I can't wait to hear what kind of questions you ask because you guys do a great job of treading the line between filling in a lot of gaps, but also digging a little bit deeper and to some of the, the, the hot issues that might be affecting that person. So can't wait. It will be exciting. With that, I think we're going to wrap this episode of Waiting to be Signed. Thank you, Adam, for filling in. It's been such a fun conversation. I just like the conversation aspect and obviously talking about the art with you as well. You have a new and novel point of view compared to Will and I. And so it's been an absolute joy. So I've loved doing it with you. It's felt like just a, a easy, casual conversation and um, I'm glad we get to share with, with others and I can keep going. So I, I appreciate the opportunity just to to hang with you and talk art talk. yeah absolutely and you know you're always welcome back if you need another guest host as long as you're willing to come back absolutely anytime thank you beautiful all right well that's it for this week folks uh thank you for listening collect the article and i'll be able to catch you next week bye bye